now that we're through the holidays, it's the season of events. And there's one that I was just looking through our list that we don't have in here. And maybe it's because it's like outside the U.S. But we got to include everybody, right? Of course we do. That just wouldn't be fair. No, exactly. Um, Odd Camp 2019, that didn't make our list for this week's episode. It's going to be in Manchester uh, October 19th. Jeez, that's like forever from now. That's like forever from now. It is. So you have plenty of time to plan your trip. Odd Camp is an unconference celebrating free culture, free and open source software, hardware hacking, digital rights, and all manner of collaborative cultural activities. It'd be pretty fun to go, Wes. I mean, I'm just saying. I know. Chris and Wes mess up Manchester. I can hear it now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you said it first. This is Linux Unplugged, episode 285 for January 22nd, 2019. Hey there, and welcome into Linux Unplugged, your weekly Linux talk show that's all over the world, recording live, and mostly has its crap together. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. And speak for yourself, Chris. (laughs) Hello, Mr. Payne. You know, I should. I should. It's just, when I look at today's episode, I think we must be going at an unbelievable, unstoppable pace, if you will. We have a bunch of really interesting community news. Some that's getting a lot of attention. I don't know why it's getting so much attention, but we'll have Wes break it all down for us. Then we have a bunch of great updates. So many things to announce and cover today. A lot of stuff going on in the community. Then we'll chat with someone, an individual, one crazy person out there who hopes to make the next design tool for Linux to build applications, not just for Linux, but for other operating systems as well. And it's one of those tools that when you talk to developers, Linux desperately needs. And the plan to fund this thing is rather unique and seems like they could actually pull it off. So we'll bring on Alex, the main developer and originator behind this idea, and see what he has planned. Then, in the second half of the show... It's undeniable that open source is facing a new quote-unquote headwind. Yeah, there's your business speak for you. And it's obvious when you look at things like the recent MongoDB relicensing, AWS's announcement of DocumentDB, which is a MongoDB ripoff, and so many other things that open source projects that are server-side projects that were hoping for some significant funding once they grew to a certain size are being replaced by commercial products that offer all of the wonderful benefits of these commercial products and none of the openness. And it's a massive problem that's actually impacting the way these open source projects get funded. So we'll talk about that. And I'll give you my first impressions of Ubuntu 19.04 Disco Dingo, which I've been running here for a few days. And it's fast. I'll tell you a little bit about that. But before we go any stinking further into the show, we must bring in that virtual lug. Time-appropriate greetings, Mumble Room. Good morning, everyone. Greetings. Hello. Hello, Bruce and Cubicle Nate and Mini Mac and Sean. And Brent, it's good to see you back as well. How has your travels gone? I'm still traveling. It's a kind of a crazy, crazy time. But, wow, uh, of course you I are. Know. I know it's nuts. Uh, but good to be a little bit closer to you guys in the world. Where are you? That's a great question. Uh, I'm currently in... <laughs> that doesn't sound like you know, Brad, honestly. <laughs> I'm starting to piece it together. Um, I'm currently in BC, sort of like southeastern BC. Next week, I'm in Quebec City, and we'll see after that. Okay, I'm in Texas, and Wes is in Seattle, so it's a good spread. We got a good spread going here today. 
So let's start with the story that you may see shared the most right now. If you're listening around the time this episode is released, which is uh, around the last or second week of January-ish, depending on when you're listening to this, there is a lot of discussion right now about vulnerabilities in Apt, including remote code execution, which is also leading to other discussions about using HTTP versus HTTPS. So, Wes, I was hoping maybe you could break down, like, what is the big hoopla about right now in regards to remote code execution and man-in-the-middle attacks with Apt? Oh, yeah, it's been uh, making the rounds today. And a security researcher by the name of Max found a remote code execution vulnerability in Apt and and Apt-get. And really, the first thing you should acknowledge, and we've talked about this before, is when you install packages, well, uh, at least in the Apt system, they have root access to your file system. So bad things can happen. It's important to trust where your packages come from and go through the hoops to verify that that package actually came from the source you expect. Now, combine that with the fact that by default, at least in Ubuntu and Debian, your system is generally not set up to use an HTTPS mirror. So just plain text over HTTP. Now, most of the time, that's just fine, right? As we said, you know, there's usually at least checksums and almost always a GPG signature involved. So you can go right. check and verify that, that the package is valid. Yeah, so the actual packages... Even if it's coming down over HTTP, the actual packages have signatures. Yes. Okay, so here's where it gets a little bit trickier. Now, internally, when Apt runs, it has an internal helper for HTTP. So the main process sort of spawns it off and says, here's all the packages I'm working on. Go do all the HTTP stuff. And then that process responds back over a socket to the main process with like, oh, here's the URL or, you know, there was a redirect or 404, whatever the particulars of the transaction might be. What you didn't expect, though, is that, of course, it's an older utility, and it's not a nice protocol with real data structures involved. No, no, it's just line-delimited, plain text. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And the HTTP helper doesn't really handle the redirects. It reports the redirect, and then the main process decides what to do, usually then issues a new request you know, for wherever the new the new resource can actually be found after the redirect. There's like a multi-process architecture here where uh, there's one part of app that becomes aware of a redirect, it captures that, and then it delivers it to another part of app, which then makes the decision? Yes. And uh, okay. also the helper is responsible for handling, like, unencoding, unescaping all the, the URL parameters, but it just blindly includes that in its output. It doesn't sanitize it. It doesn't make sure that it's carefully delimited. It just hands that right back to that to the ah, main process. And and so someone could sneak something in there, basically. Exactly. So if you construct a malicious URL in your redirect, you can basically tell the main process to go download any arbitrary package you want, which includes any arbitrary signature. And because, as we talked about, packages have root access, that's a remote code vulnerability. Okay. 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 So really, it's it's a couple of things here. I mean, essentially, uh, at the core of it, it's a man-in-the-middle attack, which perhaps something like using HTTPS would potentially help with. So even though the packages have signatures, doing everything over HTTP means that the things aren't getting verified as they would if they was using HTTPS, correct? Right. So yeah, basically, there's two possible attacks and and. One is a compromised mirror itself, right? Somebody takes over the mirror that you're using, and HTTPS doesn't doesn't help you there. You're, you're kind of just screwed, and your trust is broken. But the bigger thing, and the thing that HTTPS can protect against, is network attacks. Things like BGP hijacks, or anytime someone is able to be a man in the middle, change your connection so that you are presented with someone who's not real. Now, if you've got 
an HTTPS connection, then you have a root certificate somewhere that presumably your man-in-the-middle attacker can't attack. Or at least it's a lot harder to do that than just to, say, put a man-in-the-middle between you and your corporate firewall. Okay, so what's going on here? Because I did a little looking around. Um, OpenSUSE's zipper uses uh, HTTPS. Uh, DNF uses HTTPS. Why, why is Ubuntu and Debian not using HTTPS? Seems like they should be. You know, that's a good question. And it's kind of been uh, quite the debate for a number of years. Now, of course, you can use HTTPS. It makes some things like uh, setting up easy, easily setting up caches in between. It makes those things harder. So there are some downsides. Mm. And you might have less mirror selection, of course. But security really comes down to defense in depth. And so while most of the time signatures are enough, HTTPS can really be helpful. So it, it seems like, why not make that the default? You can still have HTTP available as a fallback. That's fine. Just let users have the most security right out of the gate. I think it's worth mentioning that uh, this isn't just a theoretical threat. On March 9th, 2018, there was a report that a Turkish ISP had swapped the downloads of popular software with their own hosted spyware-infected versions. Now, this was mostly targeted at Windows users, so us Linux users don't really need to worry about it that much. But the concept is the same. Um, And a lot of tools that you would download to just make your Windows box run decent were replaced with their own infected versions of the applications where the download links were just using HTTP. And it does kind of make you think, like, this could be done on a larger scale, say this could be an attack against all Ubuntu users, potentially. It might not be a common threat, but it is a very real threat. Well, you still, remember, have the package signatures here. You still have to have a valid package that that passes the signature check. But that assumes that everything from the get-go was set up without a man in the middle. Right, and with this vulnerability, it was possible to add... Additional because um, you can have these same you can have these same problems. Let's say if you got if you started off with a with something that was affected from the ISO, which is often also not served over HTTPS. <laughs> oh no, oh no! Now we're going down a rabbit hole of paranoia. But it it is something I think that is worth thinking about, and um, it's gotten a lot of attention. We should note too that uh, this is already patched in recent versions of apt, and you can mitigate it just by enabling HTTPS and using an HTTPS repo. So go do those things if you need to. In both Debian and Ubuntu, this has been patched, but you have to be on a supported version, obviously, to get those fixes. Do you think this is something that they'll address? Do you think in a, in a, in a period of time we'll see HTTPS uh, apt mirrors, or is this something that they'll just kick down for a while? This is a can that will continue to get kicked. What do you think? Oh, that's hard to say. I, you know, I could see it certainly certainly in Ubuntu. I mean, the, land, the, the times, the landscape, it's changing. HTTPS is just about everywhere. There's been a lot of pushes browser side, and I think everyone's just a little more comfortable with it, so... The time's ripe. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, let's shift gears and talk about something that I think is the Linux user's version of defragging your disk. At least it is for me. You know, when, when you talk to Windows users, they'll talk about how they love watching disk defrag because it's sort of, it's sort of peaceful, like just to sit there and watch the data reassemble. And then they, they used to debate, like, when should you defrag the disk and all these kinds of things. Well, I do this myself with the Linux scheduler. I'm constantly wondering, like, am I using the best I.O. scheduler? Am I using an I.O. scheduler for a server when I'm in a desktop environment? I've also heard that Manjaro will ship a desktop-optimized I.O. scheduler. And um, I guess, Wes, I, I, while, while we're still having you break things down for us, I wanted to have you break down this story uh, to the best of your ability what the hell is an I.O. scheduler? And then kind of related to that, could you talk about this article that we found where um, they attempted to use eBPF, which is a new feature in the Linux kernel, which is super cool. 
that we should talk about too. Uh, they attempted to use eBPF to determine which IO scheduler is the best. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so y- there you are, Mr. Chris Fisher, and you got some. <laughs> you're doing a recording. You're making Linux unplugged, and you got to save those bytes to disk. So you tell your no, operating I system. I mean, really, you request your operating system go save these files to the disk, please. But of course, you know, there's multiple blocks involved there. Your disk is probably already doing other things from other processes and maybe users running on that system. So you got to have a schedule, in this case, an I.O. schedule. And that's basically the kernel takes the take the input blocks and the requests coming in and orders those and then actually ships them out physically to the disk to go get written to disk through whatever firmware is involved with your fancy SSD. eBPF is a handy new feature that you see in modern kernels that does bytecode. So you get to write cool little programs that get loaded into the kernel. And the whole idea is to be able to instrument and get statistics on all the things happening in the kernel. Basically, think of it as the building block we needed to have dtrace-like functionality on Linux. This case, uh, Fred over at Circonus, which is a, a monitoring company, well, he's always been curious, right? What What is the best I.O. scheduler? Because you've got a couple options here. You've got uh, the completely fair scheduler. There's deadline. There's no op. Uh, there can be more options in, in general, but those are the ones he's looking at here today. Right. There's got to be differences on your workloads, right? So EBPF yeah, is yeah. something that you can use. Circonus has their own monitoring agent, so he installs that on some Ubuntu systems. You wouldn't have to do that. They just happen to have a fancy eBPF <laughs> plugin for it because EBPF, EBPF is the new hotness, right? And that lets him right. like make easy graphs. It sends it up to their service, and he can you know make charts and stuff. What's funny is that ends up uh, biting him in the butt, uh, as you'll see later on. But it is still a, a pretty handy feature, and I think it shows that those sorts of functionalities are now becoming common, even in commercial products. Yeah, so the, the real story here isn't really the results that they got from the test because it doesn't really tell us much, unfortunately. But perhaps... The real story is, holy shit, eBPF is awesome, and now we have this functionality built in to the frickin' Linux kernel. And people probably will be familiar with the Berkeley packet filter. Super quick version. How is this different than like what the BSDs have with the Berkeley packet filter? What's, what is eBPF, and why is it way better and so cool that we have it in Linux? Well, eBPF is extended BPF, um, and... and Really why it's neat is it's always been super helpful, and it's it's something you can use to write little programs to go catch network traffic. So it's what you're using under the hoods when you're using TCP dump. You write your little TCP dump command line, which is basically just a DSL for writing this stuff. TCP dump under the hood compiles it into, into BPF, into bytecode, and then runs it against the network traffic. And then you can set up these really tight little routines to match, like, oh, I don't know, only UDP traffic on port 53, for example. Yeah, and that bytecode is running inside the kernel in a safe way. It's it's incredible. You can do a lot of fancy analysis to sort of prove, you know, this won't loop forever and, and, and other sort of escape analysis. Yeah. And what's neat about it is that it's extended because it's not just for network stuff. You can load it all over the kernel. So you finally get access to a bunch of information that you couldn't do without manually instrumenting and recompiling your kernel before. I think that's a really important point to make there. It's not just about networking. In fact, uh, we did a deep dive in TechSnap Go to techsnap.systems slash 388. It's the one about eBPF. It's it's like a, a super competitive game-changing feature that's coming. Well, it's it's arrived. And it's so nice that there's really high-end hardware being built around this functionality now. And so um, it's not something that's probably on your radar, but it's such a cool thing that Linux can do now. And I really recommend you go check out that episode of TechSnap. But uh, in the meantime... It appears it's getting easier than ever for Linux workloads 
on Windows 10. Now, Windows system for the Windows subsystem for Linux has been around for quite a while, but it has one huge limitation. And that is it's actually lacking a functional Linux kernel. Now, of course, you could fire up uh, an Ubuntu VM or a Debian VM or what have you in uh, Hyper-V. But it's not quite as functional and as easy to script and control as you would, say, be able to fire up a VM on Linux. That's where Canonical's Multipass comes in, which today is coming out of private beta. And it looks pretty nice. Oh, yes. Multipass, at its core, is a service to manage Linux, and really, in this case, Ubuntu. Uh, Linux, Ubuntu, they're virtual machines running on Windows 10, but without the overhead of having to deal with Hyper-V yourself. Maybe, especially, I think, in our case, if you are a Linux user who might just have to use Windows 10 for some reason, for whatever job or particular workflow, but you still want your Linux. I'm I'm not an experienced Hyper-V administrator. I respect it, but I don't know it very well. So Multipass is awesome. Right. It's sort of using Hyper-V as an implementation detail to just get really fast VMs fired up on a Windows box that you can now access and control from the command line. And once they're launched, a PowerShell user could fire off commands and scripts at Multipass and the VM itself, including like things that run inside the VM and applications that should be loaded and features that can that can allow you to scale up multiples of these or reproduce VMs for development purposes. Yeah, I mean, really, that's it right there. David Chalmers, a product manager over at Canonical, told the register that that's exactly what Multipass is aimed at. Developers in a corporate environment. There's a lot of challenges to do. It's not a good workflow normally, right? You might have either a horrible command line experience that doesn't have like a full kernel and is sort of confusing, or you've got this full virtualized GUI, which again, is not what you want. It's nice to see Linux everywhere, isn't it? Like, this is... um this is becoming the runtime. This is becoming the runtime of the enterprise environment. And that's why this is important. This isn't really at desktop uh, Windows 10 users that want to play Steam games. This is this is designed for people in the corporate environment that want to use Linux as sort of a runtime that they can get everywhere. And you have all kinds of options now in Windows. It's sort of amazing. You have the subsystem for Linux, which gets you a pretty usable uh, Linux environment. Now you've got uh, these easy optimized Hyper-V VMs that are the graphical way to do this, where Microsoft has worked with upstream distribution creators like Canonical to make an optimized environment for Hyper-V, which gives you nice things like keyboard and mouse and copy and paste integration and alt-tabbing in and out, amongst other things. And if that's if that's not your flavor, if you prefer to work on the command line and script and, and, and shell script things, you've got multipass now. And it, it really is a sort of what works best for you kind of option on Windows. In this weird way, Windows 10 gives you ubiquitous Linux. You can have a window that has Ubuntu up, that has OpenSUSE up, that has Fedora up, and is running multiple types of different virtual environments all on Windows 10. There's no excuse, right? If you're a Windows user, uh, you can have Linux in all or some of the ways that you like. We're looking at a kind of modularity here. It's it's a uh, it's Linux modularity on Windows. But what if this went even deeper? What if this went to the core of Windows itself? And that might just be what's happening thanks to what may go down as one of history's most ridiculous technology story leaks ever. Think about this in context. A massive story about Microsoft open sourcing core components of Windows itself. Windows itself. What are you talking about? What are you talking? That cannot be true. 
I know. And it get, and and then get ready for this part. It gets leaked by some mid-level employee who's just updating his LinkedIn profile. Because that is apparently what has happened this week. We've never talked about Windows Core before. It has been a rumor for a couple of years. I have heard it kicked around for a couple of years now, but we've never seen anything about it. And LinkedIn is advertised as a place where people can share their work experience, find jobs, and, you know, mingle with their peers. And it's also over and over again a roundabout way to leak information about what massive corporations are working on because one Microsoft employee profile mentions the, quote, open source components in Windows Core OS. Yeah, the profile in question is a security program manager tasked with managing, quote unquote, the security of Windows Core OS from malicious actors and code. Hmm. Now that's a little confusing since Windows Core OS hasn't been announced yet. Um, and that's, that is the exact name of rumors that I have personally heard from people that would be familiar with the matter. So I'm a little, I'm a little confused because they were just rumors that I was dismissing until now. And that same security program manager then said, quote, that he improved the security posture of Windows open source components through initiatives that investigate vulnerabilities found and establish a process for redemption. So if you connect the dots between the two, you have reason to suspect that the Windows Core OS is going to rely on some mysterious open source components, which essentially brings us to the story now. Yeah, I mean, there's been rumors about Core OS, I think, since 2017. And essentially, people are, are suspect anyway that it's kind of the, the core of a modular version of Windows customized for all kinds of devices. Microsoft already tried something like that with Windows 10. Uh, remember Windows 10 Mobile, Chris? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> but Windows Core OS seems to be purpose-built for more cross-platform, if anything. What do you think of this, Wes? Could this, I mean, Windows Core, could you imagine Windows Core OS being free? And the next version of the, and even they speculate in this article over at Tom's Hardware, they speculate about uh, the next version of Windows Desktop being based on this Windows Core OS. This, this lines up, right? It does, and it doesn't. I think it, it lines up because we've seen huge moves by Microsoft in the world of open source, right? They clearly understand, at least in their modern tooling, that open source is useful, and they take advantage of it and contribute to it. But we haven't really, ex excluding some of the .NET stuff, .NET Core and PowerShell, we haven't really seen any inroads into the world of Windows, and that's where the Windows branding on this makes it kind of stand out. Yeah, we've got, I mean, I think it's also worth mentioning Visual Studio Code has been pretty well received. Um, in fact, when you look at their open source project, remember they just re recently released Azure Sphere, which is based on Linux. They, they open sourced the old MS-DOS recently. Right. TypeScript, uh, WinForms, .NET Core. They keep writing all those little handy command line utilities for Linux. There's a lot of little things that uh, over the years have been sort of adding up, and this core nomenclature has been the direction they've been going, PowerShell core, .NET core, 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 core. I could possibly see it. The reason why I don't get extremely excited about it is simply because it, you know it wouldn't be GPL. And I, I don't mean to be that guy, but, um, you know, it's not going to change the world if it's not GPL. Like, the, the GPL is that special kind of license that really made Linux grow because when Samsung was contributing to the GPL or was contributing code that was GPL, they had to also work with competitors at the same exact time. Whereas if, it, if Linux wasn't GPL licensed, they could have just kept all those innovations for themselves, not necessarily shared them upstream if they didn't want to. And I don't know if we would have had the same success story with, say, 
the Linux kernel on Android or et cetera. Right. I think it's less of a it's less of a really big philosophical moment and probably just Microsoft being practical. Yeah, exactly. And it's still good. Like I don't I don't mean to like diminish yeah, Oh yeah. Yeah. But it's it's not it's not like change humanity good. It's more like it's a it's a practical kind of good. That all said, I kinda wanna ask Brent this question. This is really out there. This is really out there. But let's just say we're for 10, 10 years down the road after this thing happened. If you could sit there and say, I can switch to Windows, say it's Windows 15 or which Windows 25 at this point, and it's got, open, it's got an open core. I can run an operating system with an open core, and I, I can use Adobe Photoshop, I can use Adobe Lightroom, I can use Adobe Premiere, but, my, but when, I open up my, when I open up my file manager, when I, when, I, when, I, when I browse the internals of my operating system, when I open up my web browser, that's all open source software. When I open up my text editor, that's open source software. It's just Windows open source software. Would, do you think that would be a compelling uh, proposition to you? Hmm. I'm, I'm throwing in my mind like, well, how is that different than the Linux I'm using currently, right? You can run proprietary software on the top. Right. Um, and all the base is mostly open. The only difference here might be that it's going to be Win32 compliant. Uh, it can run Windows traditional software, I suppose, would be the major difference. That and the fact that it's a different type of license. Your Linux desktop is GPL software, where this might be, you know, BSD, Apache, or some Microsoft license. Yeah, interesting. I think it would. Um, hmm, I think it would hit some of my, um, well, partly some of my ideals. I mean, I know the difference uh, in GPL is huge, um, but for some people, um, simply the idea that they can have open source and see it and modify it is is enough. Um, but I wonder. Uh, so maybe I'll throw a question back at you guys. Um, what? would be the advantage for some Linux users like us to have simply an open source Windows? And how would that be any different uh, from a usability standpoint from what we have today? I don't think it is a net win. I don't know. I have, I'm not fully convinced of this. Linuxunplug.com slash contact changed my mind. I feel like if it's not, if it's not GPL, then it it doesn't really stand the chance of like the long term infinite time scale humanity scale kind of contribution like when when we talk about Richard Stallman and when he's talking about free software uh, I've never installed GNU/Linux slash Linux. he's talking about he's talking about keeping something from humanity he's talking about making making software code that is sustainable long term by humanity versus something that is closed and proprietary and that doesn't advance humanity. And when you think about it in those larger long-term contexts, I don't see the net positive of it. Like a GPL desktop with a full GPL software stack could could be around for a thousand years. Um, but a commercial operating system, even if, even if components of it are open source, much like Mac OS, is inherently tied to the commercial whims and the ebbs and flows of the United States stock market. Like, it's just not a, it's not the, at the same scale. What do you think, Wes? No, I mean, I see what you mean, right? It's just, it's not going to take over the world in that way. It's, it's sort of just incremental change, and it's nice to see, uh, but probably we can all just stick to our wonderful world of Linux and our uh, free and open source desktops. Hmm. Yeah, I find that interesting. It's, it's a nice to see, but... Um doesn't really change that much, does it? it it's kind of like um, something to talk about, but it doesn't really 
effect too much. Okay. Well, we should probably we should probably stop at this point because this is all just rumor um, related to some LinkedIn stuff. But it, it just got us, you know, got us thinking about this kind of thing. You can never tell with modern Microsoft. It just uh, makes you wonder, right? Where is it going to go next? Like that is legitimately what it's at the core of the story. Is we at this point, I think we're ready for anything, even Windows Core, um, and that even in itself really tells you something. Now, uh, we, I think, also could continue this conversation into our next couple of major topics, including an application designer for Linux, as well as this whole S-storm around MongoDB, which we've been covering pretty diligently in Linux Action News, but I'll recap for you in a, in a wider context that I think I'm a little concerned could affect the fundamental funding of future large-scale open-source projects, because it just seems like we'd come to a new normal And now all of that's out the window. But I want to do a little housekeeping because there's so many community events coming up that I I want to make sure we have one episode right here where we really kind of bust through this stuff. All of what I'm about to tell you will be linked up at linuxunplugged.com slash 285. So let's bust through some of the things that are coming down the road. First up, extremely proud, happy, thrilled, excited to say that our live audio stream is now, once again, in working order and sounding better than ever. jblive.fm, you can plug that into your mobile web browser and it'll just start streaming. You can go into VLC, like open network, and plug in HTTP colon slash jblive.fm, boom, enter, and you're now streaming our audio stream. And uh, Wes has been working on some cool stuff on the droplet to to kind of like make it so that way, even when we're like at Linux Fest or when Alan's streaming BSD Now, it's all up in there. Is there any open source in any of that that you're doing? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, whatever we, we decide on. There's there's multiple interesting tools. They're all open source that we're using. Uh, we're, we're, it's kind of a hot race right now between a couple to see which will actually end up in production. The good news is they all work. They all sound great. And it yeah. means that if it's on jblive.tv, it'll be on jblive.fm. Yeah, and... Um, we, uh, I, I'm just super happy with the way it sounds. We were very, we were very picky with where we went, and I think it sounds great. It took us a little bit to get there, but if you're on the road and you know we're doing like Linux Unplugged or something like that, just plug in jblive.fm and listen live. It's, uh, it's really nice. And also, just a little other bit of uh, network-related housekeeping. Um, really, very, very happy to announce that Jim Salter has joined Mr. Wes Payne as the full-time co-host for TechSnap. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you guys did. You just put out your first episode, uh, episode 395, techsnap.systems, slash 395, all about Let's Encrypt. You guys do a deep dive. I love it. I love it. It was great. You know, yeah, Jim Jim is great. I'm really excited for where this is going to go because he has a lot of experience, uh, a lot of knowledge, and some great stories. So expect yeah. a lot more from the TechSnap program coming right up. Yeah, Jim's coming to Linux Fest too, so I'm, I'm excited to get to meet him in person. He's an author. Uh, he's a writer over at Ars Technica. He, he's he been running Apache himself on his own hosted systems since uh, FreeBSD 3.1. <laughs> Uh, and he's been a fierce advocate of free and open source software since then. And uh, he's he's published some books, he's published some work, uh, and um, of course you can read him on uh, Ars Technica. And he covers everything from Wi-Fi to, to NAS distributions and next generation file systems. So And our favorite, WireGuard. Yes, uh, yeah, he's, a, he's, he's a, just like you and me, he's a big WireGuard fan. So I don't think we could have found a better co-host for you. And uh, that first episode is out, and uh, go check it out, techsnap.systems slash 
$3.95. Go subscribe because uh, they're going to a new uh, fortnightly schedule, so it's not too much, but when they do an episode, it's information dense. And I loved it. All right, so I mentioned Linux Fest. You know, we're going to Linux Fest Northwest, linuxfestnorthwest.org. It's April 26th through the 28th. Although, I don't really know what's going on on the 26th. 26th is a Friday, right, Wes? Am I wrong on that? But 26th is a Friday. No, you're absolutely... Normally, it's like two days. This time, it's three, so I'm not sure either. But I guess it means there's no there's no reason not to be in Bellingham on Friday. Does that mean we're supposed to be set up Thursday? That, like, fundamentally changes everything. So... You know, I suspect it's going to be just slightly more official. Because in, in, in times past, they've had things like game nights on Friday or other oh, get-together. Yeah, right. So it's probably yeah. just a little formalization of that. Yeah. It's 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 going to be the 20th anniversary of Linux Fest Northwest, and we have a huge Jupiter Broadcasting crew. We have team members that you haven't even met yet uh, that we're still <laughs> still trying to get them on air so you can meet them. Um, we have uh, everybody really <laughs> is coming, with pretty much the exception of Michael Dominic from Coda Radio. Uh, Alan is going to make it. Um, uh, uh, Jim Salter is going to make it. Popey and Wimpy are hoping they, I think they're making it. I, I think they're like 95% locked in. Joe's going to be out here. Noah's going to be out here. Wes will be there. Angela will be there. Like it's going to be a huge, there's people I'm not even, just because I, I could just sit here and go, go on and on. There's a huge crew coming and we're going to have our uh, Saturday evening parking lot barbecue outside of Lady Jupes. Huge hit. I, I mean, how many people do you think were there last year, Wes? Oh, I don't know. It was, um, Ooh, 50 probably, maybe? Yeah, probably around, right around 50, and it was a great time. People were coming and going and hanging out, and there was always someone new to meet, someone friendly to hang out with. I suspect there'll be a Levi friend again this year, too. <laughs> you bet. You bet. Yeah, I've already talked to Emma at System76. When you and I went out there to do the Thaleo coverage, uh, we made sure we were on the same page, and uh, we're going to do a, a even bigger uh, cookout. We'll have multiple grills going. Lady Jupes will be there. Uh, bring your drones and uh, bring bring a friend and um, come hang out with us. I have the meetup page up right now. You can uh, find that at meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting. It'll also be linked in the show notes. Let us know if you're going to make it. We also have a Telegram group that is now linked in the show notes for Linux Fest. So we have an official Linux Fest 2019 community Telegram group linked in the show notes, as well as the meetup. This stuff is getting official. We're getting excited. There's probably going to be several of your Jupiter Broadcasting friends hosting talks at Linux Fest this year. Definitely going to be a big show. Really encourage that you go to it. All the details are linked up in the show notes. Now, moving right along, like I said, we got a lot of community events. A couple of more to go over. At the Pasadena Convention Center, March 7th through the 10th, 2019, is Scale 17X. Again, we're going to be there. We won't uh, have a booth necessarily, but we'll be at the event. There'll One of our team members, at least, maybe more, will be giving talks. Uh, I think both Wes and myself, I think Wes, you want to go Wes? Cause oh, if you want to yeah, go, why not? Of course. Let's do it. Wes and I will be there as well as another one of our team members that you have yet to meet will be there. Uh, and it's going to be a great show at the convention center is beautiful. The location next to it has great places to eat. Always a great community at scale. So Jupiter broadcasting is going again, March 7th through the 10th, 2019 at the Pasadena convention center scaleexpo.org we have a link in the show notes and we also have a telegram group already set up for that which is also linked in the show notes i encourage you to participate in these telegram groups because this is really where you get all of the information as it's developing a lot of times we're at these events and things change quick and uh, that telegram group is the most up-to-date spot and now 
last but not least, May 31st through June 1st at the Irving Convention Center, right there by Dallas, Texas Linux Fest 2019. We will be there. And I'm very excited to say that, again, talks will be had, meetups will be had. We will have a Telegram group and all of that as it gets closer. We actually have a Telegram group, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash Texas uh, for that one. And uh, we'll do a meetup as it gets closer. And, um, yeah, I don't know how many of us are going to go there because it's in May. And we have Linux Fest and Scale uh, ahead of us. But a couple of us, at least, will also be at Texas Linux Fest this year. So that's a lot of cool events, eh, Wes? Like, boom. Oh my God, there is so much going on. So many great opportunities to just uh, meet people, hang out, and chat about our love for Linux. You know, we give time to these kinds of things in the show because these events build stronger connections in the community. And in a community where people are dedicating their passion and their time and they're scratching their own itch to create software for other people, it is so fundamentally important to do that. It matters way more than it does in other contexts. Like in the business world, there's this profit motive that forces everybody to be fake nice to each other and get along because everybody wants to earn a buck and nobody wants to take any big risk or loss. But in the open source community, we don't have that that fake pretext that forces us to get along. People can be jerks to each other and it's very counterproductive. But these these events and and it not not just chatting with other people, even if you're antisocial, just going there and being around other people that like the same things you like or are giving you information about things you need to know about, like through the talks and whatnot, it is it 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 changes the game. And if you've if you've never participated in an event like this, it will take your passion for Linux and open source up to an entirely new level. And if you haven't been in a year or so, it will re-energize you. That's why we talk about this, because it does move the needle. And one last thing in the show notes, if you've ever considered maybe giving a talk but didn't know how to start, didn't really have any resources for public speaking, go check the show notes again this week, linuxunplugged.com slash 285. Link in there to a GitHub that has so many great resources about getting started, how to find a place to give a talk, uh, just figuring out the best idea, how to write a CFP, which is a call for papers, like how to how to handle that and submit it and write it in a way that's going to get accepted, uh, all that, and, and then tools to use for your presentation. I'm pretty sure you found this link, Wes, and it's just a it's a killer resource. Yes, and that's because our little local homegrown conference, Seagull, provides that link. And uh, I came across it when I did a talk for that last year, and it really is helpful. There's a ton of great things about how to you know understand. Who are you presenting for? What should your talk be about? And how do you get started? There you go. I know there's a lot to go through in the housekeeping section. Um, and I know that some of these regional events aren't applicable to the most, of the most of the people listening, but I hope our enthusiasm for them at least encourages you to participate in the ones in your area. Or uh, maybe maybe go do a talk even. I, I think we could, we could use a lot more of that out there. One last bit of housekeeping. Uh, I was just doing, I'm down here in Texas right now uh, for a bunch of content releases and I was uh, co-hosting the live stream today and I had a chance to announce uh, a new course that Linux Academy released called the Linux Operating System Fundamentals. And uh, first of all, it's uh, done by a training architect named Kenny. He's just a He's a great guy and he just, he loves Linux, but better than that, he's got a great voice and he's got great production uh, quality. So uh, the reason why I wanted to mention this course, and I'll have it linked in the show notes, is it's about the Linux operating system fundamentals, but a good like 40% of the course, I've taken it myself already this afternoon before we went on air, um, 
is about the history of Linux and the history of the operating systems that existed before Linux and then uh, what led to Linux and then also uh, GNU and the Free Software Foundation and the Open Source, uh, open source Initiative and then, and then the Linux distributions that came after that and that sort of then the tail end of it is the uses of Linux um, that we have now today. But I, I just didn't expect like this great history of, of all of this stuff. And as somebody who's been using Linux since the nineties, I have to say there's, there's areas that being self-taught I missed and especially some of this history stuff. I just really loved it. So I'll put a link in the show notes. Right. That's what's really hard when you are self-taught, you know, you, you don't learn that when you go read bash tutorials, it doesn't tell you about where all this great software you're learning to use actually came from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was, it was great. And um, if you're not a Linux Academy student, they do have a seven-day free trial. I remember that from the ads I used to do for many years. So you can sign you can sign up for free for seven days and, and take it. But I just I, I I was talking to Kenny about it when we were prepping for the stream, and I was like, oh, I'm taking this. And then I was I actually did take it earlier today because I uh, being in Texas, I have two extra hours <laughs> before the show. So I'm like, what am I gonna do? I'll take Kenny's course because it's like it's like an hour and a half total. And so I took it, and he just has a great voice and he has a great production. So. Anyways, good job to him, and it was a good release. And I, I'm hoping, by the way, kind of related, I'm hoping that Kenny makes it out to Linux Fest Northwest, too. So it's, that's possible. We could see him there. Now, uh, there's a lot of talk this week about a new design application for our beloved Linux, something that's really missing, the ability to sort of sketch out a general design for other applications. Uh, and it's called, is it Archea, Wes? Akira. Akira, of course, of course I missed it, of course, of course I missed it. And I, do I have the sort of the general premise, right? It's like a sketch application for UI design? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's not something you're going to use to actually make actual interfaces. It's for designers to play around with, right? To mock up designs, to, to ship to your client as an image to say, does this look about right? So Akira has been getting a lot of attention because this is an area that there's a lot of commercial solutions for, including ones from Adobe and many others. And there's not a lot of options for GNU slash Linux. And Wes had a chance to sit down with Alex and talk to him about his Kickstarter that he's doing to try to raise money and to try to get people to develop for this thing full time. It's a fascinating idea. Is there anything else we need to know before we listen to the interview, Wes? No, I, I don't think so. Alex is uh, the lead. There's a, there's a broader team, which he'll talk about. Awesome. So here we are. Welcome to the show, Alex. And thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure, absolutely. Okay, well, you're obviously here, I mean, one, because you make a lot of good stuff. Actually, I first saw your taxi application. Um, it's really pretty handy. It's not what you're here to talk about today, but it might come up again because you've got quite the background. We're here to talk about Akira. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so uh, just a little digression about Taxi is that, uh, it's not 100% mine. It's an old project that I, I took and I'm redeveloping and I'm uh, refactoring and trying to update. So I, I don't want to take all the credits for Taxi. It's not, it's not 100% mine. But oh, yes, sure. <laughs> I'm here to talk about Akira. So I just launched a Kickstarter campaign for Akira or a co someone likes to call it Akira UX, which is a UX design tool for Linux. 100% native for Linux. It's not an Electron app. And... Um, UX design tools means that it's something similar to Sketch or Figma or Adobe XD that is not for creating GTK or Qt interfaces, user interface like code is not 
made to speed out code. That's a great point, right? So it's not like something like Glade or Qt Creator. It's not going to make a QXML file or anything exactly. like that for you. Okay, so what formats are we talking about here? What's the If I'm going to be a user, what, what are we going to have as the output? Okay, the output, the name probably is going to be a, um, like .akira, like a custom extension, but it's just an SVG. Everything is going to be based on SVG. We want to go the route of having a custom extension because we're going to try to save the file with a JSON format in order to have version control baked into your file that you can activate or deactivate based on your necessity. So you can keep track of all the different versions of your file in the same file, you don't have to have a dedicated repository or like the things that we used to do, having version one, version one final, version one final underscore reviewed, version one final, this is the actual final. All this kind of good stuff when you do some design for mm, a long time for a client that is never 100% sure what to do. <laughs> That's fascinating because you know, obviously on the development side, and you, you play in both these worlds, on the development side, version control goes back ages, but I don't see it as often in the design community, or at least not as standardized. Exactly. Um, Sketch, uh, from like um, the Sketch app application that it's currently only available on macOS, has something like that, but it's terrible because every time you save something, like you move a square or you change one letter, and you save the file, it resaves completely the entire file in itself. So you end up with having a sketch file that even if you have just one single arbor, it waits four gigabytes. Oh, wow. It's terrible. Yeah, it's like, it's really handy if you lose stuff and you can go back, but there's no way of manually controlling what you can fi- what you can save or if you want to pause the uh, version control of this file and just like activate it only if you have some major release or stuff like that i'd say it's like as a first approach of version controlling design but it's it's not that great that makes sense okay well let's pivot back to akira then and we were just starting to get there before i went down the other road of explaining just what you're targeting so you'll be outputting in svg uh, so akira is for designing interfaces and then producing vector images that you then might go share with the people downstream who actually built the thing. Exactly. It's mostly for designers, which uh, someone raised an eyebrows that, oh, why developers cannot use it? Why A lot of questions they were asked, why, why Akira cannot generate code? Because we already have those things. We already have those alternatives and those options. Something specifically targeting designers that they need to create just images they can share with developers or they can put on uh, uh, online and create presentations or do some quick mockups and prototypes. We don't have something like that uh, right now on Linux. Oh, yeah, right. So, yeah, maybe you can talk a little bit more because this is something you obviously know well as as a professional and a Linux user. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the pain of trying to have both of those things in today's world? Oh, my God, it's terrible. <laughs> okay, so uh, any feel free to interrupt me because I can go on forever and I don't <laughs> sure. want to annoy everyone. But uh, I'm, I've been doing development and design at the same time for more than 13 years uh, professionally. So uh, I was 
forced throughout my entire career to just use or Windows or macOS just because of applications. Uh, I tried in uh, digital studios or creative agency that I worked in the past to go in and say, hey, let's not use Adobe, let's use uh, GIMP to do our photo retouching. And everyone started laughing at me, not because those tools like GIMP, Inkscape, or Krita are bad tools. Those are amazing tools and they work great. But the problem is the workflow, is the user interface. You can, uh, that's something that I always say, you can do a square gray, uh, like a gray rectangle. You can build a gray rectangle in Inkscape, in GIMP, in Krita, in Sketch, Figma, it doesn't matter. It will always be a gray rectangle. But if you want to build a user interface with 20 different artboards and shared assets and design system and something that you can co collaborate with other designers, your options are really limited and there's nothing like that on Linux. So it's all about optimizing the workflow of designers with a modern tool that offers a modern interface. That's that's the main purpose. So making Linux a, a habitable platform for designers so that someone you can you can have everything. You can have your cake, you can eat it too and design all your applications whether it's for another platform or for Linux natively. Absolutely. And also the main purpose is helping Linux being like turn into a mainstream operating system that is not uh, unfortunately for how we want to wish that this is the year of the Linux desktop. It will never come if we don't have proper native alternative softwares that are comparable or even better than what are available on Windows and Mac OS. And Akira wants to do that, wants to say, okay, you don't want to use Sketch, you don't want to pay $30 a month to use Adobe XD, come on Linux. We have exactly the same thing that works as well, but it's open source, it's free, and we don't ask money for it. So that's it. So will Linux be the only targeted platform or will someday I will be able to run Akira on my MacBook? Ah, that's a really good question. For now, it's 100% it's Linux because on MacBook or Windows, you have 20 different alternatives that can do the same. <laughs> right. But it's open source, so if there's a crazy user out there that decides to compile and run GTK on Windows or macOS, they can totally do it. We're not opposed to that, absolutely, but it's not our goal. Okay, well then, uh, while we're on this subject, what about Linux distribution? Is it for all distributions? I also happen to notice a, uh, look, look like an older branch, but a branch called App Image on there. So are there, are there plans for these universal formats? Yes, absolutely. So by default, we're going to start with um, PPA, like uh, on Launchpad, where we're right. going to release daily builds. So pretty much all the Debian-based distribution will be able to install it. Uh, then in the team, we have um, Flatpak Maintainer, a uh, really great guy. His name is Bilal. Uh, we're going to be sure to release daily Flatpaks or like weekly Flatpaks installed everywhere. Um, it's going to be released on the elementary OS uh, App Center. And we're open to, we don't have the skill level right now to do it, but we're open to contribution to release also a Snap image and an app image. So a Snap Pack and an app image. Perfect. Okay, well, that, that pretty well answers my question. Yeah, we want to try to cover as many distributions as possible. And uh, that's also why we want to buy as much hardware as possible in order to test it and be sure that 
every single Linux users. It doesn't matter the distribution. It doesn't matter the uh, how uh, modern as, and performant their laptop or computer is. They can run Akira because, yeah, we want to be just available for, to anyone. Okay, so you said we there, uh, and that's another thing we should talk about. It's not just you working here. It sounds like you've got a great team behind you. Yes, uh, I'm the crazy guy that decided to start this thing like a couple of years ago, and I was like, oh, it's actually harder than I thought, (laughs) (laughs) like everything. Um, So in the past year, I started uh, releasing native Linux applications like SQLer and Taxi, like you mentioned. And throughout this year, I started collaborating with a lot of different developers. In particular, I feel really comfortable and uh, these are great people. Other three developers that they helped me a lot with my applications or I, I contribute to their own applications by offering design and development, stuff like that. Uh, the team is... Um, there's myself, of course, and then there's uh, Felipe Escoto, which is a Mexican developer for Elementary OS. He released Spice App and Notes App, two amazing applications. And oh, yeah. Mind blown. Yeah, and these, it's a kid. Like, this guy is 20-ish something. He's like the smartest kid I've ever met. I feel like so old and so behind when I talk to a him. wonder kid. <laughs> yeah, a wonder kid, absolutely. Uh, then there's Alberto Van Jules, which is a software engineer, a GNOME Foundation member. He's the maintainer of Git-G, which is a um, visual uh, Git repository manager. Um, and then we have Bilal, and I always butcher his last name, El Musawi. Sorry, Bilal. I apologize deeply. He's a developer and is an Agnome Foundation member and is an engineer student. So it's like the, the smartest of the bunch, probably. And uh, he's one of the maintainer of a lot of Flatpak uh, applications. So if Flathub is a great repository, it's mostly thanks to Bilal. Wow, that is impressive. Clearly, a lot of people who know what they're doing and have experienced building these kinds of applications before. And maybe that explains my next question. How far along is Akira? What should users know? Is it ready for use? Is it just starting out? Where where are you? Uh, that's a really good question. Uh, okay, Akira, there's a, a barely working prototype that you can uh, download from the open source GitHub repository, compile and run. Um, what we're missing is basically the core in order to be actually usable, which is the hardest part is the canvas. Right now, it doesn't exist a Canvas library that does what we need. It doesn't exist a Canvas library that by default interacts with SVGs. And whenever you create an object, it creates a separated layers that you can manipulate without having an issue. Oh, I see. Right, you need this sort of rich environment, the Canvas, to go interact so you can make shapes and drag them around and layer them and actually get the work done. Yeah, right now it it doesn't exist. There are a lot of projects that they do that but are really limited or discontinued or it's all... Uh, it's it's not a reusable library. It's all like math based, and it's it's C code. There's nothing that we can simply grab and integrate inside Akira. It's something that we need to create from scratch. Uh, so yes, the application is up and running. It's a sort of like MVP version, which comes with a built-in canvas that you can start interact with. But you cannot yet create shapes and save files and manipulate layers. So the majority of the work is going to be about creating this Canvas library, which we want to make it available as uh, like 
a package that everyone, if they want to create their own uh, mock-up design tool, they can incorporate that library and reuse it. Oh, great. So just sort of a spin-off project of, here you go, guys, here's a great little canvas you can use. Yes, exactly. Because it doesn't exist something like that. So yes, it's going to be used in Akira, but it's going to be available to anyone that they want to incorporate in their own project. And we're looking at a timeline of two to three months to release the first usable uh, alpha version that I'm trying to push it and not being an alpha version, but probably it's going to be an alpha version. But version one is going to be available if the Kickstarter campaign is successful in three months after the end of the Kickstarter campaign. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that. You've got a Kickstarter campaign going on. Um, and, and I know our listeners are going to want to know, what's the money going to be used for? Is there some corporate structure behind the scenes? Do you have plans for exactly where everything's going to go and how you'll use it? Tell us more. Yes, absolutely. So I, I in the Kickstarter kickstarted description, I wrote down a breakthrough of how old the money will be used because honestly, I'm asking for a lot of money. It's totally 65,000 Canadian dollars, which roughly translate to 50,000 US dollars. And a lot of people were impressed by the fact that 30% will go in taxes because I'm not a corporation. We didn't uh, create a foundation or anything like that, or a nonprofit. I'm just like a, a single user. So that money will be for the Canadian government is like income. And I have to declare taxes on that income and I have to pay 30%-ish that money. So already 30% is gone forever, burned. <laughs> I gave it to the government, but it's fine. Then uh, $22,000 will be used to hire these three developers for three months. That's the main purpose. I want to pay them as a full-time job so they can work on this eight hours per day, five days a week for three months nonstop. It's the only way we can be able to deliver something like that. They cannot work part-time, one hour per day, or during the weekend. Right. They need time to focus if you're going to get good quality work out quickly. Absolutely. So I, I asked them their rates, and I'm going to cover the entire rate. And then we have an extra $20,000, which 10000 will be to pay my, <laughs> my paycheck, basically, and uh, sustain myself for three months. So I don't need to, I can take some three months off of work, and I need to work, I can focus on Akira 100% as well. And the rest of the $10,000 will be used to buy hardware. Because Yes, every one of us has a laptop, but we just have one laptop that it's probably not the best. We don't have graphic tablets. We don't have 4K monitors. We don't have uh, touch touchpad interfaces and all this kind of stuff that are standard in a professional design world. When you work in an agency, it's normal having a 4K or 5K monitor. It's normal having a Wacom tablet with a digital display. How good... Are those things currently working on Linux? Uh, not that great. They work, but they're not the best. So having the ability to purchase that hardware and develop Akira since day one on that different hardware or all those different resolutions and different input interfaces will give us the ability to 
release Akira working in every single environment possible. Right. You won't have to just try to retrofit fun- that functionality on down down the stream later. You're going to be planning for it because you know professionals want to use it. Exactly. And uh, how many times you use a project and you go into their repositories and there are issues like this doesn't work with my uh, tablet or this doesn't work with my laptop because I have this resolution. And the answer is sometimes, I'm sorry, I cannot test it because I don't have that hardware. <laughs> Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we want to try to avoid that. It's like, no, we cannot fix it because we don't know how to recreate the issue. So that's the main thing. Um, yeah, on the Kickstarter page, there's a full breakdown of everything in percentages, all the money. And a lot of users were kind of like weirded out by the amount and the fact that I actually wrote down the money. They didn't believe that 30% goes in taxes or some didn't believe, oh, $10,000 for your rent and your food. And I'm like, yeah, I I, I have to eat for three months. But I want to reiterate the fact that I'm not trying to get rich or buy a Tesla or, I don't know, get a bunch of money and then disappear. I really want to make this happen because it's literally the only thing that it's preventing me from using Linux every day. I have one MacBook left in my apartment just because of one application, the design application that I have to use. Wow. Okay. Linux users out there, if you weren't going to fund the Kickstarter because you're not going to use Akira, you're not a designer, I think that's a pretty good reason right there. <laughs> yeah. Get you, get you, Alex, right off that MacBook. Yeah. <laughs> Help me. <laughs> yeah, that's it. And, you know, I mean, to just put it in a little perspective, if you think about, you know, several developers working for a significant part of a year at like a major development company, well, that's going to be a lot more money than you're asking for. Yeah, exactly. I'm I'm not paying benefits to them. I'm not paying paid vacations or something like that. So the cost is really is really limited compared to what you're going to get paid if you work on a full-time job on, on an actual company. But um, yeah, that's, that's the amount of money. I wanted to be as honest and clear as possible. And I put the full breakdown of how I'm going to use the money. And also my wife told me like, you shouldn't do that because a lot of people will question you and will start like having doubts of what you wrote. But it's, I want to be open source also with the money. So if we reach the goal, I'm going to constantly do weekly updates of how I'm going to spend the money, where the money will go. And of course, if I end up not spending all those all the money in taxes or I can use the accountant to help me out to save something, all the, the money that I have left will be funneled back inside the application itself. I'm going to uh, we're going to set up some bounty sources to help other developers that want to c- contribute to get paid in order to work on Akira. So it's not, yeah, it's not too get rich or take some time off work and go on vacation. That's not the goal. That makes sense. I, I certainly wish you luck. Uh, I've actually already backed it, so I hope it goes oh, through. <laughs> yeah, and we'll have links to everything we've talked about in this interview in the show notes. Is there anything else you want the audience to know? Just one thing. Uh, Everyone, probably a majority of the audience is on Linux. And in our entire life, we always found ourselves using an application and thinking, oh, this is great, but it doesn't do what I actually want. Akira wants to fill that gap. Akira, we want to give you the freedom of saying, I'm on Linux and I don't need anything else. I don't want Adobe to 
create a port for Linux of the Adobe Creative Suite because I, I don't need it. I'm fine with this. That's our goal. Professional caliber Linux design application. That, that could be the future of Akira. Yes. Where should people go to find more from you, Alex? Uh, yes, there's uh, my Twitter account, which is at Alecad, with 3D. And then I'm on YouTube. I do actually tutorials about Linux design and development because uh, I don't like to sleep, but it's fine. And uh, that's it, pretty much. I'm, I'm everywhere online. So people start to getting really, really annoyed by my online presence. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us and good luck. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Such a great idea. And I like how much Alex has this together. He's got a real plan of attack here. And as Linux users, we're often in this position of trying to decide, like, do I want to take a risk on funding this thing? Although I know that this is something we really need. It's good to... It's good to hear Alex really seems to have it. We've debated a lot of kind of questionable Kickstarters over the years on this show. <laughs> I don't think this is one of them. No, no, he seemed like he had it figured out. So I'm really glad you had a chance to chat with him. And uh, we'll have a link to uh, their fundraiser in the show notes. Probably worth doing uh, if you're a developer, because I think it'd be an investment in a possible workflow. And, uh, you know, I like that, uh, that he's thinking about multi-distro packaging, too. I think that's a good thing. Um, I'm looking at our time here, and I'm thinking we're going to have to wait on the Ubuntu 19.04 first look. I've been running it now since um, pretty much since our predictions episode. Oh, I man, think, but you yeah. won't talk about it. I keep asking you off air, and you say, no, no, Wes, I'm going to tell you on air. And once again, no. Yeah, and I guess it's kind of good. It gives me more time. I just, but I feel like by the time I, we finally get around to this, it's going to be just near release time. I just wanted to give a first look really at um, at what's coming down the road for GNOME. Uh, it's it's for those of us that have had um, known problems. There's a lot of good stuff in the works, so we'll talk about that in the future. But I wanted, I wanted while it's still fresh, I want to take a moment and wrap up the show with this interesting challenge that uh, I think is facing open source software. And I think what we'll do is we'll open it, and if we if we get some good responses, we'll conclude it next week. And if you followed Linux Action News. You know that recently MongoDB went through uh, a series of changes in attempt to relicense in a way that that forced uh, providers that are re-hosting MongoDB to have to pay a certain fee, get a certain kind of relationship with MongoDB. And it's resulted in Red Hat and Fedora and Debian and other distributions deciding to no longer include MongoDB in the repositories because they believe that license conflicts with free software. And... At the same time, another shoe has dropped, and that is that Amazon has released AWS DocumentDB, which is a straight-up competitor to MongoDB and even implements compatibility with Mongo's D, uh, MongoDB's API <laughs> uh, from the version right before they made the licensing changes. Do I have all that right so far, right, Wes? Yeah, I mean, and it's not. I mean, it's not just MongoDB. Redis, Kafka. There's yeah. been kind of a long line of projects that are. You know, came came from companies that were all all in on this. They had this open source product, kind of freemium, right? Trying to sell uh, additional enterprise services or different licenses on top. It kind of varies from company to company. And then, well, the cloud behemoths came into the room, and it turns out everyone wants them to run the software for them. So, yeah, how do you make money? Great idea, but now run it at scale is sort of what's happening. Oh, that open source project there, great idea. Now let's just take that and implement it on our own systems. And and really, uh, Microsoft kind of did this first with their Cosmos DB over on Azure. It just 
didn't quite get the same attention that AWS's document DB did. But they kind of just straight up did the same thing, did a MongoDB competitor that's now an Azure branded service that you pay for. And what they're selling isn't the software. What they're selling is the reliability and the infrastructure of AWS or Azure in this case. And this is, I think, a huge threat to open source software. Not because these large commercial companies are taking open source software and re-implementing it or even just re-hosting it in some cases and then calling it their own service and charging for it. Like, that's that's going to happen. But in a much, much bigger picture way, it could fundamentally undermine how open source projects that need to build at a certain scale get funded. Kickstarters don't build MongoDB. Patreons don't build MongoDB. Large corporate VC-backed funding builds things that are at that scale. It's just the nature of the software industry. And I want to play a clip from Ben Thompson, who in his podcast, Exponent, which we will link in the show notes, he's talked about this and written. We'll link to this in the show notes. I want to play this, and then Wes and I are going to chat about it a little bit, and then I'm going to leave it to the audience to kind of pick this up and, and chime in. But this is just a quick clip from his most recent podcast where he talks about this VC funding issue. This is driving a lot of angst sort of in the open source world, which is we kind of got this cool new model where open source projects could not just be sort of developed by hobbyists or people in their free time or people supported by foundations or grants or whatever it might be, but actually like getting VC money. Like, and VC makes so much sense for software because, you know, software is a lot of work up front to sort of monetize in the long run. And, oh, you can monetize it with these new models. And if Amazon's coming along and basically leveraging their massive scale and what they're selling to enterprises, which is the sort of reliability and scalability and all those things that Amazon offers, is that business model going where? Are we losing what seemed to be a workable business model for open source? And that'd be a bummer, frankly. It'd be a bummer for everyone. It'd be a bummer for Amazon. Huge bummer. I mean, here's the concern, Wes, is if if I'm a VC firm and I'm looking at backing some great open source service idea, isn't now a massive threat to that project is if they ever get any kind of market share, one of the big commercial hosting companies will just re-implement it? See, I'm, I got a little bit of a contrarian take here. I, I think Ben's totally right, and that's a great episode of the show. But the key is long-term. He says, you know, VC makes sense for software because you, you you have to spend a lot of money and then you try to be profitable over the long-term. But the VCs of today, that's not how we operate. And I think we all got a little too hopeful that things like Mongo, things things on the billion scale, things that, you know, San Francisco VCs are funding was actually a sustainable business model. But Amazon was, you know, AWS didn't start till like 2007. So we're really only one tick in here. We've gone through one cycle and we're seeing we got really hopeful because it is great. You do want product companies that can be like, you know, like like Elasticsearch, for instance. They're like, this is a great product. We have hired great developers to build it, and now you can have it for free, and it's open source. But it turns out it's it's a lot more complicated. I think you can still have those things, but not at the scale of, you know, making huge amounts of money for people. You might be able to build a sustainable consultancy on some open source software, but I, I think the days of giant multi-billion dollar companies on them, uh, questionable. It seems like it could be a huge issue because then it means only certain companies will have the scale to build those kinds of projects. And it also makes me wonder if this doesn't have something to do with the Red Hat sale to IBM. Uh, here's here's what, before I, before I sound the alarm and I say that these large commercial cloud companies are going to consume open source projects that ever get successful, I would like to get the audience's take. But it does require like some serious homework and thought around this. 
uh, if you, but I would really love to either have you join us next week in the mumble room or just go to linuxunplugcom slash contact, but do consider the homework. We'll have it linked in the show notes. First up is Exponent, episode 159 of Ben Thompson's podcast where they talk about this. Then I would encourage you to read his piece on Stratechery, which we will also have linked in the show notes. And then additionally, one last thing is I would encourage you to listen to Late Night Linux episode 55, where the boys just debate uh, cloud lock-in versus on-premises to give you a fully rounded picture of the issue here. And then I would really encourage you to at least engage in that, even if you're not going to participate in the podcast. And But then if you do have the time, come join us or send us an email and let us know what you think. I would throw in to... Um Brian Cantrell of all kinds of open source fame. He's been blogging about this stuff too. And it's, it's a little bit different. It's a little more focused on the licenses, but I think it's an important component from someone who's been through the open source and trying to make money process. Yeah, yeah. I, it's, there's a lot of different moving pieces right now around this discussion, and it's at a different scale now because um, essentially the, 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 the thing that companies like AWS are benefiting from is the open source community nature of a project like MongoDB and Redis and others has led to strong developer adoption. But then, that and that developer adoption is super beneficial for like creating applications that use that type of database. Like it's, it's great for that. Right. You want to make it easy to just pull down a Docker container so that you can try it out if you're going to decide, am I going to use this software in my new project? Yeah, maybe you're building a prototype or you're learning. And then when it when it comes time to put it in production for millions of users to bang on it and you want to tell your boss what system they should use, I mean, who's going to fire you for suggesting document DB? You could go do your own bespoke implementation of MongoDB up on a VPS somewhere and manage it. But then who's on call? You? Yeah, and and really, like, if, if AWS has an issue, that's not on you. It, nobody gets fired for choosing AWS, just like nobody got fired for choosing a, IBM and Microsoft back in the day. Um, And so just by being AWS, I think they're going to have massive success with what is essentially a MongoDB competitor slash ripoff. I mean, ripoff's a little bit strong, but yes, right? I mean, they implement the same interface or at least largely compatible. And they do that with other things, right? They've got got Aurora, their their database, and has a common backend that they implement some like Postgres compatibility layers on top of. So it's just it's just the the commoditization the, the world of cloud where once you've hired the one ops team to run your stuff you you don't really want to branch out yeah man i just feel like it could have massive ramifications for really large scale open source like i would love to have a reality in a future where red hat wasn't the largest open source company ever free software company ever. wouldn't wouldn't that be great if if we could have another free software open source success story that's even larger than red hat right yeah let's hope we haven't peaked right and that's my concern, is that this sort of stifles the long-term ramp and, and how big these companies can get when, I, I don't know. Well, anyways, I, I punt to the audience. If we get good engagement and people have to do their homework and, and turn around and, and, and give thoughtful responses, we'll continue this conversation in next week's episode. And hopefully we'll get the Ubuntu 1904 first look in there too. It's the Gen 2 challenge all over again. I apologize about that. In the meantime, go get more Wes Payne and now Jim Salter over on the TechSnap, techsnap.systems. Uh, I'm really happy about that. We've already talked about it, but I just think it's super great, Wes, so I wanted to mention Well, thank you. Yeah, good work on the first episode, and there is more to come. And, of course, you can go get him on Twitter. He is at Wes Payne. I am at Chris LAS. And the network, at Jupiter Signal, linuxunplugcom slash 285 for all the links to everything we talked about, the community events, the news stories, the Kickstarter for the 
Uh, I'm not going to try to mispronounce it, but you know what I'm talking Akira, about. Akira, the Akira Thank Kickstarter. You. We've got it all. <laughs> I'm, I'm hopeless, Wes. I but am you hopeless. try and I, that's what counts, yeah. I think. I try. I'm starting to give up. Starting to. And also, thank you to Alex for joining Wes to tell us about his project. Best of luck to him. And links to all of the homework that we have in the show notes as well. LinuxUnplugged.com slash 285. See you next Tuesday! Unplugged program. Brent, I saw you were mentioning Tidelift in the chat room. I, I don't, what is that? So it's a new uh, open source uh, company um, founded by some former Red Hatters. Oh. And uh, it's backed by Red Hat's former CEO as well. Um, he was the one right before Jim uh, Whitehurst. And uh, what's really interesting about it, it's a new uh, model of supporting open source projects. So, you know, the Red Hat model is you buy a subscription for Linux and that goes to or basically towards Linux development for the most part, right? But the uh, this one, it, it's far more broad. So like if you have like a lot of open source dependencies in your application, uh, you can um, go to Tidelift and say, hey, I, I need to make sure that this is getting developed and Tidelift will go and pay the project maintainer to continue to maintain the project. It's like, it's like a, like not a foundation, but yeah, it, it's, it, it's an interesting way of looking at it. I think, uh, you know, they just got a series B funding, so we'll see, you know, where it goes. I, I just heard about them a couple weeks ago. They've been around for, apparently for a little over a year. So, um, uh, well, yeah, we'll see what, where, where it goes. Um, I'm really interested to see where, where, where it goes. What's their website? Is it just, it's tidelift.com. Good one. Thank you. That's good to know about. Thank you, Brandon. I've got to take on the whole licenses, uh, MongoDB thing. Yeah, do share. Yeah. So, you know, the, the typical model that has become the most common for open source companies is that they basically create a market for their skills by creating a product that is sufficiently complicated enough that other people require their skills to support and also that they want updates to that software. So the problem being is that you have companies that also have the same amount of skills that you have and if your project is popular enough that they don't want to wait for you to do update, updates or they find your support too expensive or they're smart enough to do it on their own, they lose that control. And then you know groups like uh, Mongo and there's been countless in the past um, there's the very real chance that they'll lose the control and then they're losing the, you know, the whole reason that they created it in the first place. I mean, there's other more altruistic reasons for creating FOSS software, but the typical, I need to make money using FOSS software, how do I do it? You know, this is a typical mm-hmm. breakdown path that, uh, that happens, but you have to be prepared for that I to agree. happen if, if you, if you uh, want to delve in the world of open source. I agree on all those. Yep. Every open source company has a, has a, um, uh, cash flow, you know, issues, especially with getting people to buy their products. 
uh, because they, you can just go get it for free. I mean, Canonical could easily be larger than Red Hat if they could just figure out a way to monetize every Ubuntu license out there, every Ubuntu installation out there, right? But that's just not going to happen. Same with MongoDB. MongoDB would probably be huge, but they, they, they you know, they, uh, people can just go run their software for free. <laughs> so that, that's, um, it, it's, uh, you got to figure out a better way of, getting um, money in the hands of developers. I think that that's, mm-hmm. that's the big, that's the big uh, pro- problem is right, yeah. not, you have to, re- one of the things that I always have to remind people is that uh, software is not, it, you know, it's, it's people's time. It's people's um, uh, you, you can't, it, and they can't just keep working for free. Yeah, so it's like the, the Venn diagram that's existed ever since, like, you know, 1990s when they started doing this stuff is there's there's software that's, or, the, you know, the triangle, you pick two, th- two of the three things. You can have it high quality, you can have it free, and uh, <laughs> you can't have both of them. Uh, like, if you want good quality FOSS software, you have to be able to pay the people yeah. that are making the FOSS software in order to create it well. Otherwise, it you know, it'll be slow, it'll be somebody working on their night, evenings and weekends. You know, it's a fundamental... Uh, competition between people who are quite happy to use stuff for free and 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 not you know fund the development of it and uh, you know right. people who aren't willing to just spend all their time doing nothing and not eating and not living in a house developing software for you and the value of this is negative.